The title of the message tonight is In Christ, Truth Depicted. And I, I, I have to admit, I mean, I, I am so, I am so, I, I'm, I'm so thrilled about this message. I pray that the Lord uses it uh, tonight and beyond. I really do. We're going to be going to John chapter 3. But first, I'd like us to go someplace else. I'd like for us to go to Ephesians 4. Go to Ephesians 4. Uh, we'll pray and we will get started. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do a work in this message tonight. Lord, do a work in our hearts. Do a work in the hearts of those that will hear. Lord, in the situation right now, very much so, we need to be awakened we need to be working, for the night truly is coming. So, Lord, bless your word. Lord, empower, not for the sake of the speaker, not for the sake of the tool, but for the gospel's sake, for your people's sake. I pray in Christ's name, amen. I mentioned this uh, this last Wednesday night. But I wanted, I, I wanted to mention it tonight with a view towards the message that we're going to later on in John chapter 3. When we were at uh, Calvary Baptist Tuesday night and Tim Schmidt was preaching over there, he preached on bitterness, a great message that he preaches. Look in, again in Ephesians 4, look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And that's the singular verse that Tim preached about. While he was preaching, it suddenly struck me, and I shared this on Wednesday night, it suddenly struck me that is the progression of what the wicked one has been doing in people's hearts not only around our nation, but around the world. As much as is possible, the minions of the devil himself are using this tool to disrupt the world, to create a multitude of victims so that they not only get nasty with each other and, and be going after each other, but they're far easier to manipulate. Tim brought out this fact that bitterness, which leads to wrath, which leads to anger, which leads to clamor, which leads to evil speaking, which leads to malice. It just gets to the point where people are not only seething on the inside, it becomes to come out, it comes out on the outside, and eventually it's it's acted out. And we've heard time and again about road rage and fights and, and, and people robbing and, and, and taking, and it's just because everybody's a victim. This world cheated me, and I'm going to take it out on you. And that is so incredibly sad. But then I got to thinking about the next verse. Look at this. And be ye kind, we, we all know this, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and then he says this, even as God 
for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There's the answer. I mean, you want to just shout it to the world. Don't go after this bitterness. Don't go after this anger. Don't you realize there is an answer? Instead of all this, be kind one to another. And, and oh, by the way, the reason why and the way you can is coming to Christ. Excuse me. How you do this is to recognize who he is. But you stop and consider. We can have people, because of Christ, what Christ has done, people can be tenderhearted. They can forgive one another. Their example is the Savior. Their example is who, what the Savior has, been, uh, uh, has done for us and the Father can now do because we have taken on the righteousness of Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. And I'm telling you, I get to meditating on that and I get to thinking about it. And it's like my soul, if I could just stop people, even, you know, one by one and say, look, are, are you tired of the bad news? Are you tired of people going at like this at each other? Are you tired of the hate, the anger, uh, and on and on and on? Christ is the answer. The reason why I brought this up tonight is because of where we're going to be going. We're only going to be covering two verses in John 3. Like I told you last week, I am not going to be in a hurry going through this chapter. Go, if you would, to John chapter 3. We went there from the beginning, last time we went there from the beginning through chapter 13. I'm going to, I, I'm going to go through it again a little bit, just, just a little bit of what we looked at. But the main passage for tonight is this, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the, and, and the key is this, Christ, in telling this story about himself, was now going beyond just truth taught to truth depicted. And Christ is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Please walk with me through this. We're going to go back to verse 6. That's where we learned the imperative of the new birth. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. When, when, when somebody trusts Christ, they are a new creation. They're a new creature. And that's the only kind of creature that is fit for heaven. We 
when we were born again, literally born from above, we became new creatures. Our, we now have a living spirit. There's going to come that time when we have a new body. The, the, the corruptible will be cast off. We will be incorruptible. But for right now, we recognize this. Even though we put up with this, inside, we are what we will be in heaven as far as this. We are new creatures. We're not going to be able to sin up there like we can here. But that heaven is, is not born again 2.0. We are new creatures in Christ right now. So again, look at verse 7. He looked at Nicodemus and said, now wait a minute. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And then he talked about the imagery of the new birth. And, and again, I'm not going to re-preach this. Look at verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Jesus used the image of the wind to describe the action of the Spirit. One of the things I find fascinating is when it comes to doing the work of the Lord, being a, talking to an individual or preaching, you know, however, we can't see what the Spirit is doing, but the Spirit is working. We are, we are yielded to Him. And even down the road, somebody that might hear this, when you stop and consider the potential, the possibilities, it's like handing out a gospel tract. You know, we, we, we might leave one, we'll give one to somebody. We don't know what's going to take place with that tract. You, we've all heard stories about tracts that were given out and they sit for weeks, months, sometimes even years. And then somebody picks it up or somebody picks it back up and the Holy Spirit is there. You don't see it taking place, but it works. He works. That's why it's worth spending the money to have it pumped out over, over the internet. The, there's, there's enough wretched stuff out on the internet. Praise God, get the gospel out there. Get people to hear the message. But still, here was Nicodemus. He turned around, he looked at the Lord, he said, how can these things be? And so we finished off with this. Jesus began to question him. Don't you realize this truth? Look at verse 10. He said, art thou master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, truly, truly. Listen, Nicodemus, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, <clears throat> and you receive not our witness. He's talking to a master of Israel, and he's coming, as it were, on the outside, a common man, but he was God come in the flesh. And he says, you're, you're not getting what the, the witness of what the word was seeking to say. If I had told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And he's speaking of himself. And then we come to the point where Christ, as the teacher, begins to depict truth. 
he himself who is truth. So we just read it. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if you don't know the Old Testament, you don't quite catch this. I just actually, what we're going to be going to, I read in my devotions within the last week. And it was so fat because I knew I was coming to this uh, tonight. And it was just, it, it was great to read all over again. Verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now we're going to be looking at the detail of what that phrase lifted up means later on. But I want to remind us of those, some of those places that Christ mentioned. It's important. For instance, John 12, 32, Christ said, and I, if I be lifted up from the world, will draw all men unto me. In John 8, verse 28, then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, he's talking to his enemies. He says, when you do this, then shall ye know that I am, and God is the I am, I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Christ was equating himself with God. God the Father is his heavenly Father. John 6, 44, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and same word is used, and I will raise him up at the last day. So having looked at that, he alluded to something, and we're going to go back to it. Go to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. You know, there are, there are uh, stories in the Old Testament that really, they, they kind of stick, you know, stick with us. They, they kind of stick out. And there's a lot of them. Uh, granted, I, I, I admit, uh, there are some, I mean, when, when you say the word David and, everybody thinks of Goliath. Uh, you know, there, there's Elijah, he was on Mount Carmel. You know, just on and on and on. Then there's this story. You know, you read the progression of the children of Israel in the, um, the tr their travels from Egypt to the promised land. And I get to looking at them, and quite honestly, I, I start to judge them. It's like, don't you see what God is trying to show you? But I got a feeling I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't be squeaky clean on this because you're out in the wilderness and there's no Winco and Rayleigh's, and, you know, and so forth. You know, there's none of this. I mean, it's, they're out in the wilderness. Now, let's go to verse four in Numbers 21. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much, much discouraged because of the way I don't know about you, but if you've ever been really discouraged, 
you are very susceptible to thinking a lot of things, to saying some things. I've been there. And so maybe I'd be tempted to be with them on this. Verse 5, and the people spake against God and against Moses. Now notice, not just against Moses. In, in, in they're learning God, but they're speaking against They've seen miracles, but somehow they're struggling with their view of God. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread, the manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. Now let's take note of details that are starting to come here. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, all right, we've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Praise God. They noticed that. They saw that. They realized that. Pray unto the Lord. They knew enough that if something was going to be made right, they needed to go to the Lord. They're not just going to Moses. They're telling Moses, Moses, go to the Lord, that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said <clears throat> unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he, what? Looketh upon it. Again, detail. When he looketh upon it, shall live. Now remember what Christ said in John 3. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lives. He lived. Moses interceded for the people. And I'm sure not realizing it at that time, but in what God told him to do, he was setting up a situation. He was setting up a depiction of really how salvation comes to us all. And in our meditation of this, there, there's some things that we need to not just run over quickly. We need to stop and, and ask, okay, why? Uh, why not? We need to ask now, detail, Lord, what about this one? Think of the depiction that is here. Now, again, the Lord said, you know, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him. It wasn't something complicated. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But we're simply talking about looking, and that looking is by faith. They were told, look to the brazen serpent. And when they did, and that's what the Lord is talking about when it comes to salvation. Question, 
Why does mankind complicate salvation? No, seriously, you stop and think about it. How many religions, how many, how, how many ways to God, if I can put it that way, rest on this, simply looking? On the other, way, on, on the other hand, how many of them have a slew of things that people are supposed to do? Uh, commands they're supposed to take, place things that they're supposed to belong to, you know, what different exercises. And even after they do all that, they're going to probably wind up burning in hell for a few thousand years in a place called purgatory. My soul, what takes place? You see, I got to thinking about what we talked about there in Ephesians. And I thought, you know, I need to tell people this. I need to use this in my witnessing. You see everything that's going on. Let me tell you something. The Lord comes to us and he, he says through him, we have the possibility of forgiving one another. We can live gently with each other because Christ has forgiven us and he's made us new creatures in Christ. Let, let's stop, let, let, again, let's stop and go through this. Think, first of all, of the depiction. The sting of the serpent's bite was death. What is it that has bitten mankind? Sin. It was brought by a serpent, and his bite simply said this, Yea, hath God said? Stop and think about it. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. It brings people to death. They see they're, they're separated from God. Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think of this depiction. There was no aid in the wilderness for a bite. They, they didn't have a CVS pharmacy. They couldn't go to any place. <laughs> they couldn't go to Kaiser. They couldn't go to, you know, I mean, they, they, there was no place to go. And that's what it is with Christ. There is no cure in humanity. The cure is in one place. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And the mercy came through the brazen serpent for the people back then and for the lifting up of the Christ 2,000 years ago. Third thought, many perished. I mean, you just, you read that and you just start drawing conclusions. Many were perishing from the bites. Again, because of what we've read. Uh, the wages of sin is death. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're perishing. If some said, that's got to be crazy. I can't just look at something 
and be healed. I I, I, got to work something else out here. They're dead. They're gone. By the way, Moses did not tell them, okay, listen, make up some ointments. You know, we've got to get something along where, you know, we can fight this this disease. We, we, We can fight this thing with vitamins. (laughs) No, it it, it can't happen. It just can't. But it's in us to do. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 14, we just read it this morning. There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Why Why is it important that Christ be lifted up? Because all have sinned. And he is the only way. And again, going back to Ephesians 4, you just wish you could corral all of humanity or as many people as would hear and say, my soul, if you want things, if you want things at a, you know, more more, uh, passionate for each other, if you don't want people angry or spitting at each other and all this, listen, this this is what you do. You recognize Christ. You, take, you let him take away the bitterness and wrath and anger and all that. They were not commanded to climb the pole. They were not commanded to touch the serpent. They were not commanded to do anything. They weren't commanded to bring a sacrifice. All they had to do was look. You see the depiction? We sometimes wonder what worth is the Old Testament. This is part and parcel of why it is. You've got to know the book of Numbers to realize this, what Christ was quoting, or he was speaking about. And it's like, yeah, here's Christ in Numbers, like we can find him in Leviticus, like we can find him in Deuteronomy, where I'm reading right now. He's there. Oh, by the way, (laughs) they weren't supposed to buy relics of the serpent either. Nobody sets up shop and set, you know, sells little, you know, little serpents on a stick. You know, ain't supposed to do that. In fact, I think in some of you, you know this story out of 2 Kings 18. When the king, I think uh, Nebuch- um, Hezekiah, he removes the high places, break the images, cut down the groves, break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Now get this, he takes something that is old, old, and it had to do with Moses. I mean, this is a priceless relic. He came along, Hezekiah came along, and he broke it because they were burning incense to it, and he said, it's Nehushtan, it's a piece of brass. It's nothing. So he destroyed it because they were worshiping it in place of the God who eventually was going to be lifted up. They weren't commanded to look to the man. They weren't commanded to look to Moses. They were to look to the serpent, to the brass serpent, like we look to Christ. Stop and think about this. There is so much not only in modern religion, but also, yes, in ancient religion that flies in the face 
of what was going on right here. The people were commanded to look at the serpent. Every person, they could do it themselves. They didn't have to wait for someone else. It's high and lifted up. They can see it. All they have to do is look. And here's why it's so important. Because the depiction is the depiction of Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Going to Romans 8, you need not turn to it. In verse 3, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, the brazen serpent was made like a fiery serpent, but it didn't have a sting. Christ comes not bearing death, but giving life. Remember this. The serpent was cursed in the garden. And in Christ, we realize that Christ was also cursed and took our place. Look at verse 13 of Galatians, or I'll quote it to you, Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Now, Stop and consider. Here's these people. They've been bitten. They're dying. Moses is told to make this serpent. And he looks, he tells the people, look to him, look to them, and you will be set free from that which is death to you right now. What is taking place here? These people are being told, look, Christ has become this curse for you. He's taking on, as there was deliverance in the brazen serpent, there's deliverance in him. Learn it. Both the serpent and Christ were lifted up as objects of faith. I'm going to be talking to someone, Lord willing, this week. We're going to be talking on Tuesday. Somebody that's dying and needs Christ. And I'm going to once again lift Christ up to them. Be praying for that. I'll tell you about it later on. We'll see what takes place. But they called me this last week. We're going to be meeting on Tuesday. And, and, and I just pray that this person finally realizes that Christ is lifted up for them. Remember when Christ said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The words lifted up are from the Greek word that was used of being lifted up on the cross, being lifted up into glory at the time of ascension as well. It literally means to exalt or raise 
to a place of honor. Christ being lifted up on the cross, it was actually a place of honor in this, that he was lifted up as the sinless lamb of God to take the penalty for our sin. And then he was lifted up. He is now up at the right hand of the father interceding for us. And he said of us, I will lift you up, raise you up. We will share in his glory. There's also something else that I'd like for us to see. The cure of the brazen serpent was unknown to reason. It didn't make sense. What do you mean? All you have to do is look at something in order to be healed of this, of this bite. It didn't make sense. I mean, if you, if, if you went to doctors about it, it wouldn't pass muster. But it worked because it was of God. It's the same thing with salvation. There's no reformation. You know, you don't turn over a new leaf. There's not things, the, the Ten Commandments can't save you. They let you know that you are a sinner. You simply look to Christ. He is the one who paid the penalty for my sin. He is the one who died for me and rose again. All I have to do is look to him and rejoice. Thank you, Lord. I am trusting you. You came to save me. I am trusting in your salvation. We're told to look to him. A very familiar passage, Hebrews 12 too, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, thinking little of it, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And for that reason, Philippians 3 tells us, hey, our conversation, our manner of life is in heaven. Why? Because we are now new creatures in Christ. We receive eternal or everlasting life. We receive everlasting life by looking to the Lord. Not by promising him that, uh, you know, we'll do certain things. Not by making a commitment to him. We're looking to him by faith. It is by simple faith. And it's not just that as far as our salvation. That is just the beginning. There is a book, and I'm going to quote, it's not going to be super extensive, but it's a page, and I want to read it to you. It's a book that I went through years ago, uh, and I've mentioned it to a couple of people in the church, and I've encouraged them to buy it. I'm encouraging you to buy it. I have hard copy, I have it on Kindle, and now I have it on Audible, and I've been listening to it. It's entitled, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I encourage you to buy it. If you have it, I encourage you to read it. If you've read it, I encourage you to read it again. It is such a joy to read the message of it. The reason why you want to read from chapters 1 through 13 is you'll more understand chapter 14. 
And when you get to chapter 14 and you read it through, it's a joy. Hudson Taylor is one of those heroes of the faith that I have loved reading about. I've read about William Carey. I have read about Adoniram Judson. I mean, the, the, the men there uh, going to the Alka Indians, all of it. But I love this because here was a man that while he was serving, he was struggling as well. If you don't completely get this, get the book and read the rest. I'm going to start reading toward the beginning of chapter 14. And like I said, I'm just going to read. It's a good page, but it's worth it. Now remember, we're saved by faith, right? We live by faith as well. But how, how much of that faith? When we look to Christ for salvation, that's just the beginning. And I mean just the beginning. Because Christ is all. Six months after the foregoing letter was written, a junk northward bound on the Grand Canal was carrying a passenger whose heart overflowed with a great newfound joy. Mr. Judd in Yang Chow was expecting the return of his friend and leader, but was hardly prepared for the transformation which had taken place in the one he knew so well. Scarcely waiting for greetings, Mr. Taylor plunged into his story. In characteristic fashion, his hands behind his back, he walked up and down the room exclaiming, Oh, Mr. Judd, God has made me a new man. God has made me a new man. Amid the pile of letters awaiting Mr. Taylor in Ching Kang had been one from John McCarthy written in the old home in Hang Chow. McCarthy, quote, I do wish I could have a talk with you now about the way of holiness. At, time, at the time you were speaking to me about it, it was the subject of all other thoughts, occupy, all, of all others occupying my thoughts. Not from anything I had read, so much as from a consciousness of failure, a constant falling short of that which I felt should be aimed at, an unrest, a perpetual striving to find some way by which one might continually enjoy that communion, that fellowship, at times so real, but more often so visionary, so far off. Do you know, I now think that this striving, longing, hoping for better days to come is not the true way to holiness, happiness, or usefulness. It is better, no doubt, far better than being satisfied with poor attainments, but not the best way after all. I've been struck with a passage from a book entitled, Christ is All. It says, the Lord Jesus received is holiness begun. The Lord Jesus cherished is holiness advancing. The Lord Jesus counted upon as never absent would be holiness complete. 
He is most holy, who has most of Christ within, and joys most fully in the finished work. It is defective faith which clogs the feet and causes many a fall. This last sentence I think I now fully endorse. To let my loving Savior work in me his will, my sanctification is what I would live for by his grace. Abiding, not striving or struggling, looking off unto him, trusting him for present power, resting in the love of an almighty Savior, and the joy of a complete salvation from all sin. This is not new, and yet tis new to me. I feel as though the dawning of a glorious day had risen upon me. I hail it with trembling, yet with trust. I seem to have gotten to the edge only, but of a boundless sea, to have sipped only, but of that which fully satisfies. Christ, literally, all seems to me now. The power, the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy. How then to have our faith increased? Only by thinking of all that Jesus is and that he is for us. His life, his death, his work, he himself as revealed to us in the word to be the subject of our constant thoughts, not a striving to have faith. I love this. Not a striving to have faith, but a looking off to the faithful one seems all we need. A resting in the loved one entirely for time and for eternity. Hudson Taylor's response on this was this. As I read it, I saw it all. I looked to Jesus, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed. Let me wrap this up. Christ said, without me, ye can do how much? Nothing. Which means that we need to be looking to Christ for everything. Now, I'll tell you right now, I have gone up and down, and, I, I, and, and praise God, there is so much I've learned here, but this is one of the reasons why the word abide, that Greek word which means constant presence, constant influence, it's why that word abide is, is so precious to me. And see, if God's people, in, instead of trying to seek to live uh, the life of Christ in the flesh, you know, by the force of flesh, instead of by the resting in faith. I wish I had it up here. It's in, it's in my, my prayer journal. But Hudson Taylor wrote a short poem. Uh, Don't have a care for yourself. None is too much for thee. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone, thy work to rest in me. Uh, have you ever, you know the, song, the, uh, the hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting. You know that. 
How many of you don't know that song? Okay, you don't? Oh, Roger, we got a song to learn. That was one of Hudson Taylor's favorite songs. He would get on the little, I don't know if it was a little piano or harpsichord, whatever they had, but he would play that. He said one time they were having riots in two places where they had the stations there in China. And, and, and fella came in and said, you know, Dr. Taylor, this is happening and that's happening. And he says, okay, we're going to be taking it to prayer. And as he was getting ready to leave in a little while, he heard Hudson Taylor whistling. And he was whistling that song. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. And he said, Mr. Taylor, how in the world can you whistle at a time like this? And his response was, what do you want me to do? You want me to worry? You want me to fret? You want me to, you know, is that going to help me? Is that going to help them? How about if we trust God for what he'll do? And see, to me, that is the answer. The world is getting bitter. The world is getting, uh, you know, more angry. The world, you know, they're going on. How is it that we can teach them, hey, be kind one to another in Christ? Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Here it is. <clears throat> Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let me ask you, if you died right now, where would you go? What's your future in Christ? What's your future in eternity, I should say? But then for the Christian, you know, Christ was lifted up. Now he lifts, he's very lifted up. He's, a, he's lifted up on high. And without him, we can do nothing. So we're always looking to him who is high and lifted up. I'm still going to be thinking about this. I love this thought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the word of God burn into our hearts the blessedness of resting in Christ. I pray in his name, amen.